Good to see you today. Our gospel text comes from Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Will you stand for the reading of the word? A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now, it just so happened that a priest was also going along down that same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side and went on his way. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending to them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? The legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. In 1983, 61-year-old Cliff Young came to the starting line of an ultramarathon. Now, this wasn't just an ultramarathon, and I say that word just like that's a thing. Just any regular ultramarathon is intense, right? But this was like an ultra, ultra marathon, a 544-mile race across a section of Australia. Now, this was Cliff Young's first formal race. He had never run in any race before. In fact, he never even owned running shoes. So he showed up with brand new running shoes, blisters waiting to happen, obviously. And then he had windbreaker pants on with hand cut holes in the knees. He had cut them himself, a little ventilation system that he created. And as he came to the starting line, he took out his false teeth because they clickety-clack, clickety-clack as he ran. So, I mean, as you can imagine, people are seeing him going, what is this guy doing here? They're thinking it, but the ones with not a great filter are saying it out loud. And they're, they're making fun of him, they're questioning him and saying that he does not belong there. But that, that didn't shake him. He just decided to run anyway. So as the race started, all of these young professionals who had been training forever, who had run races like this before, they just took off. And then there's Cliff just shuffling along in the background at his own pace. 
And as night fell that first day, all of the other runners, they laid on the side of the road to rest for a while. And this was what was normal. They would normally run for about 18 hours, and, which sounds crazy. And then they'd sleep for six and then keep on going. But not Cliff. Cliff just kept on running. And he just kept shuffling along. And the backstory about Cliff is that he grew up on a farm, a 2,000-acre farm with 2,000 sheep. And his family didn't have a whore, any horses or tractors or anything. So when it came time for the sheep to, to need to come in, if there was a storm that had come in, Cliff just took off running. And he brought in those sheep. And sometimes he said, he told reporters that sometimes he would run for two to three days straight without stopping. So when it came time for him to be in this ultra, ultra marathon, he, like, he felt like he could do it. He felt prepared. Well, it ended up that as Cliff just kept on shuffling, he shuffled across the finish line first after five days and 15 hours of nonstop running. Okay, now get this. He was 10 hours ahead of the second place finisher. Yeah. And he broke the current record for that race by two whole days. Amazing, right? But as I think about this story, I can't help but think, what if someone would have seen Cliff and said, I'll run with you. What if instead of assuming the worst in him or assuming that he had nothing good to offer, that they couldn't learn anything from him, what if they said, you know what, I'm going to set aside my training regimen and I'm going to do things different with you. I have something to learn from you. And if we put ourselves in that situation, if we imagine ourselves at the starting line of this race, which is actually very hard for me to do because I would never want to do that. But, I mean, hypothetically, if we were to put ourselves at the starting line of that race, would we have chosen to run with Cliff Young? Probably not. You know, we are quick to make judgments about people. We have these preconceived ideas based on what people look like. Uh, people's race and eth ethnicity. We make judgments about people based on their age or their socioeconomic class and I'm going to throw this out there, political ideologies. I mean, that is definitely something that we have been experiencing in our culture where we see a bumper sticker or a sign in a yard or a flag being waved and if it's not someone that connects with what we believe, then we automatically think, I don't have anything to learn from you. How could we ever propel forward together and, and really bring the common good? We have nothing in common. We don't see anything eye to eye. I don't see how we could do anything good together. See, we have these preconceived ideas, don't we? And maybe even as I say that, there may be someone in your context that comes to mind that you're just thinking, I don't know if I could ever run alongside that person. But what if today, this particular text is inviting us to set aside our preconceived ideas and shatter our stereotypes 
What if this text is inviting us today to take risks and form relationships? And what if God is inviting us today to participate in the restoration stories that he's writing all over the world, but in doing so to release control? We like to be in control, don't we? And so sometimes we contain, we have this little sweet little container of restoration that we think, oh, I can participate if it's this way. But I believe that God through this text today is inviting us to be swept up in contagious restoration. And so the story, as we see, begins with this legal expert coming to test Jesus, which is probably not a great idea. And he asks this question, who is my neighbor? And I love this. This is so classic Jesus. He doesn't answer with a clear little statement. But he answers with a story, with a parable. And in the parable, he describes that this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was about an 18-mile journey. And there was a 3,500-foot elevation change here. So we have Jerusalem in the hills, Jericho at sea level. And so there's like a zigzag, zigzag all the way down this steep, steep journey. And it was known to be an area where there was a lot of thievery. It was dangerous. So this man, he is beat up. He's, all of his possessions are taken. He's left half dead on the side of the road. And then we read that Jesus describes that a priest goes by, but the priest doesn't stop. A Levite goes by, the Levite doesn't stop. And these are the two people that we would have hoped and expected would stop, right? But the priests in this day and age, they usually lived down in Jericho, and they obviously did their temple duties in Jerusalem. And then when they were coming home after their, their shift, they carried home their pay. But this is different in our context because we think about money, right? But they were usually carrying the tithes and offerings of the people, which came in forms of animals and oftentimes in their food. And if their food that they were bringing home to provide for their families came in contact with anything or anyone unclean, example A, a man on the side of the road, then they wouldn't have the food that they needed. So sometimes it's easy, I think, for us to be really critical for, about the priest and the Levite. But, like, there was a lot at stake here. But still, I think that in this hanging on tightly to what they found their security in, they missed the opportunity to step in to a story of restoration. And I think sometimes we can do that too, Right? That we hang on so tightly to our, our schedule or our reputation or our finances or our relationships. And we contain restoration. We keep it under control in what we feel like is most comfortable. But this Samaritan emerges on the scene, which in the story, it would have been a complete shock to the people that were listening in the first century. Because they're hearing a priest comes and then a Levite comes and they all, this legal expert and, I mean, these other people that were listening around Jesus were thinking, oh, who comes next? The Jewish layperson. And they're like, we're going to be the hero. Like they were just feeling like so good. Like this was their moment. Get a little pat on the back. And Jesus says, 
a Samaritan comes next. And they would have been completely shocked. Because Samaritans and Jews had a long-standing racial tension that dated all the way back to the 7th century B.C., where the Samaritans in the north, they, they went against God's instructions and they intermarried with some Assyrians who were the oppressors. And so the Jewish people thought, these people are half-breeds, they're not devoted to God's ways, they're heretical. So that was the stereotypes that they placed on the Samaritans. But then the Samaritans in return thought that the Jews in the south, they were judgmental, cruel, and closed off. So there had been this long-standing division that they said, I don't know how I could ever run alongside you. So then Jesus brings in the Samaritan into the story. And it says that the Samaritan was moved with compassion. I just love that picture, moved with compassion. And he stops and he sets aside his schedule. He, we'll see in a moment. He utilizes his finances and he helps this, this man who was presumably a Jew. Jesus is shattering stereotypes all over right now. And this man, the Samaritan, picks up this wounded man, puts him on his donkey and takes him to an inn where he receives care. And we oftentimes end the story right there. We're like, oh, that's so great. That Samaritan, he cared for him. He's the unexpected one. And that's true. That's wonderful. And part of what Jesus wants us to see. But Jesus continues the story and brings about a new unexpected character into the mix. The innkeeper. And I think it's beautiful, fascinating, and challenging to realize that the Samaritan didn't see that restoration was all, the weight of the, all of that was on his shoulders. The Samaritan said, in order to care well for this person, I need to invite somebody else into the story. I can't do this alone. And I think that's an important message for us because sometimes we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and we think that it's all up to us to make sure that restoration and healing happens. But I believe this text reminds us that restoration is best done in community. And so he goes and he knocks on the door of this innkeeper. And I've just become fascinated with this innkeeper the last few weeks as I've been doing some research. And innkeepers actually had their own questionable reputation. In the first century, innkeepers were known to be manipulative, known to be self-advancing, they oftentimes would take advantage financially of their patrons for their own benefit. And sometimes they were even known to be violent. And Plato and Josephus, who was a first century Jewish priest and historian, they both write about innkeepers and say, steer clear. And so I'm sure that the Samaritan probably knew the reputation of the innkeepers. And yet who does he go to? He goes to the innkeeper and he invites the innkeeper into this story of restoration. And he takes a risk. And we see that. We see that he takes a risk with his own finances. I mean, if you're thinking, well, hold on. Like maybe this innkeeper wasn't so good. 
Maybe he pocketed the money, grabbed his floaty, and like went out on a beach vacation. Maybe. Maybe, you may be thinking, what if the innkeeper grabbed the, grabbed the money, left the, left the guy, didn't care to him, care for him, and then when the Samaritan came back, he just demanded the money for the burial costs. I mean, we don't know. Maybe that was the case. But I tend to think as I read the story that this good Samaritan's character was good throughout and that he wouldn't have just dumped this guy off on the doorstep of the questionable innkeeper. I think he saw the innkeeper as good, even if the rest of the world didn't. He saw the innkeeper as good. And I don't think that this is a call for us to have reckless trust or for us to throw wisdom out the window. I don't, I don't think that's it. And actually earlier in the same chapter in Luke, Jesus sends out 72 disciples. And as he sends them out, he says, as you go into communities, go and find a person of peace. And if there's a person of peace there, then stay and minister together, share meals together, proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, heal the sick. But if you don't find a person of peace there, then move on. And so I think that these same principles had applied in the Good Samaritan's connection with the innkeeper. And I think that the Samaritan found a person of peace. But I can't help but wonder if maybe this was the first time that the innkeeper had seen himself as a person of peace. What if it took the good Samaritan calling out the goodness in the innkeeper for him to see the goodness in himself, maybe for the first time? And what if it was the first time that the innkeeper saw the fingerprints of God's mercy in his life when he was invited to be merciful? This was a story of contagious restoration. And I can't help but think about these two, the Samaritan and the innkeeper, these total misfits, this duo of total misfits. Like they're the ones embodying love and compassion and living into a story of restoration, they stand in stark contrast, these two, to the priest and the Levite who went by. But they're a reminder to us that restoration happens in community. And I think about the Mighty Ducks. Any children of the 90s out there? Yes. Okay, love it. So, I mean, you think about this similarly to the Mighty Ducks. Where Gordon Bombay, he's this disgruntled, frustrated, cynical lawyer. He gets a DUI and he has to do community service with this misfit, messy crew of boys in this neighborhood. And when they first meet, it is a mess. But as they continue to journey together, they see and bring out the goodness in each other. Right? It took them partnering together to create the flying V. So legendary. I love it. 
But they needed each other to be able to move forward and really see their own purposes and potential. And I think that's what happened with the Samaritan who partnered with the innkeeper. I do believe that the innkeeper was good. And we see that he was moved to compassion. I mean, if we kind of fill in the story a little bit, we think about that the good Samaritan left and left with left the innkeeper with two days worth of pay, which was helpful, but not enough for all of the care. And then it was the innkeeper who was really caring for this person in the depths of their physical, mental, and emotional and relational needs. I mean, who was the one who was changing the dressings on the wounds? The innkeeper. Who was the one who was comforting this man when he was crying out in the night in pain? The innkeeper. Who was the one who helped this wounded man hobble to the bathroom? The innkeeper. And who was the one who helped this man as he regained his strength, really process through the trauma of the attack? The innkeeper. See, because the Good Samaritan was willing to take a risk on the innkeeper, the innkeeper also was, was invited into a story of risk. Risk for the sake of restoration. And he, he had some risks. I mean, he put his own reputation and maybe even finances on the line because who wants to stay in an inn when there's like a half-dead man screaming out in the night? I don't think very many people would. And I think that this guy also had to put forth some of his own finances and restructure his schedule around caring for this wounded man. And in all of this, we see that he was good. Now, it's interesting to me as we come to the end of the parable section that there's not resolution. You know, we love a story with a good bow on it, don't we? A pretty little pink bow. But this story doesn't have that. We don't know if the wounded man got well. We don't know if the good Samaritan actually came back. I mean, we can assume that he did. But we don't know. And I think that this is very purposeful in Jesus' telling of this story because most of the time when we're invited into restoration, into the ripple effect, the contagious restoration, we can't control the outcome. And that shouldn't stop us from diving in and caring and being moved with compassion. That should not stop us from taking a risk and building a relationship. And when I think about this, I think about our daughter Lucy, who is seven now, but when she was three and four, she formed this sweet friendship with a woman who worked at Fred Meyer. We are frequent Fred Meyer people. I mean, we go once a week, maybe twice, because we're not the best at meal planning. Uh, so we would be there pretty often. And this sweet lady named Amy worked back in the organic section, and she and Lucy just had this darling friendship that started. And Amy would give her candy from the bulk bin 
And so this became a highlight to Lucy. And every time we'd get to the store, we'd put her in the cart and we'd barely be beyond the opening doors. And Amy's like way in the back of the store and Lucy's like, Amy, like at the top of her lungs, yelling out to Amy. Oh, I can still remember it. Oh, Amy. And I'm like, Luz, girl, come on. You're making a scene. And she just didn't care. I mean, she was all in. She could not wait to see Amy. And she was willing to, you know, take a risk. She was willing to just shout at the top of her lungs to find her friend. I just loved it. So about a year went by and we just had so many conversations with Amy every week at the store. We learned about her and her family. We learned about her life and her story. And she learned about us. And it was so sweet. We realized we all had March birthdays. We took her a card to the store and she had something for Lucy. I mean, it was just precious. And then after about a year of these connections, we got to the store to once, twice, three times and didn't see Amy. And we found out that she no longer worked there. And I, to this day, don't know what happened to Amy. I don't know where she lives. I don't know what's going on in her world. The story does not tie up tightly, nicely with a little bow. But I just love and appreciate my daughter so much that she taught me to just go for it, to just take a risk, to connect with the people around us with great intentionality because God is inviting us to participate in contagious restoration that we don't necessarily need to control. And so I just trust that wherever Amy is, and I've been thinking about her a lot as I've been getting ready for today, I just trust that wherever Amy is, that God's pervenient grace is continuing to pursue her through the shouts of joyful children in her context. Yeah. And when we think about taking risks in relationships, we think about Jesus. Right? Jesus didn't come and connect with the people who had it all together. Jesus didn't come and wait for everybody to clean up before he had relationship with them. And in fact, he oftentimes connected with the unlikely people that were oftentimes on the margins, the unlikely world changers that nobody would have thought of first. Jesus went to them. He invited the uneducated fishermen to be his disciples. He knocked on the doors of women who had been so devalued in society and said, come and be in my inner circle. And then he empowered women to proclaim the gospel. You know, even on the cross, we see that Jesus was willing to go to the greatest depths of love and sacrifice to be in relationship with us while we were still sinners, it says in Romans 5, 8. That Jesus was willing to initiate relationship and continues time and time again, even if we may not respond. And so if Jesus, the one that we're following, is willing to do that, then that's our call too. It's our call to set aside our preconceived ideas, to shatter our stereotypes. To take risks in relationships and invest intentionally with others in aisle nine. 
And God is inviting us to be a part of the story where we don't have to contain or try to contain the restoration, but we let to, get to let go of control and be swept up in restoration, contagious restoration. And one of the ways practically that you can respond today and you can process what God is doing is through being a part of a community on mission here at College Church. I have been overseeing small group ministry for the last year since we've been here at this amazing church that we just love. We're so thankful for you. And as we have been doing small group ministry and thinking through what God would have for us next, Pastor Danny, who you heard from last week, he and I have been working together to create um, a new model for small group ministry called Community on Mission. And Communities on Mission are going to be centered on three different values, family, discipleship, and mission. So it's our hope that small groups of people will come together, share meals together, love each other well, celebrate birthdays, but also be with each other in the lowest of lows to really be family. And then for these groups to spur each other on as we follow Jesus. So through the study of scripture and through prayer. But then also for these groups to really have a rhythm of restoration in our community. To find ways that we can serve and love, restore dignity to those around us and share the love of Jesus through meeting tangible needs right here in our city. And we're so excited about this. We are going to have on September 11th a launch night, information night at Todd and Cheryl McDonald's house. And if you're interested in just gathering more information, if you're interested in the creating rhythms of family, discipleship, and mission in this unique way, then we'd love for you to come. But if you're like, okay, Carly, I just need a little more information. I need to sift through this. That's totally fine too. But if you want to just scan, you can even do it now. You can get out your phone in church. But you can scan this QR code right here and just plunk in your information. And I will get in touch with you to share more with you about communities on mission that are kicking off this fall here. But as we think about communities on mission and we think about this text today, I think that the, the takeaway for us is that contagious restoration happens when there's participation with God and with each other. It happens when we link arms together. My friends Pete and Heidi, they, they get this concept. And they have a rhythm that every single Christmas Eve, they go to dinner and their goal is not to be served but to serve. So they, months ahead of time, they decide where they're going for their Christmas dinner. And they call the restaurant and they ask to speak to the manager and they say, hey, is there somebody on your wait staff that just needs to know they're loved this year? Maybe they need, have some extra needs. And so the manager almost always has somebody in mind. And they, Pete and Heidi, they learn about this, this waiter or waitress about their family, what their kids want for Christmas, their needs, their hopes, and they get to work. Pete and Heidi, they wrangle in all their adult kids, and this is like the highlight of their holiday season. So they walk in with all of these gifts to this restaurant on Christmas Eve. They have confetti, like they have party blowers, you know. They have paper crowns that they've made. And they walk into the restaurant and sit down 
strategically in the particular waiter or waitress's area, the manager is like all in, giddy, can't wait to see what's going to happen. And they sit down and the waiter or waitress comes and they say, hey, this is all for you. And the manager brings a chair over and they sit down with Pete and Heidi and their family. They're, they're not someone that's far off. They're not a foreigner. They're treated as family. And they sit and they celebrate and this person opens up gifts, has gifts to take home to their kids. They're working hard on Christmas Eve to provide and now here it's provided. They're wearing a paper crown, blowing a party blower. And I'll tell you what. This makes no sense in the eyes of the world, right? This makes no sense in the eyes of the world, but it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of God. So my friends, as we process all of this today, let's go throw some parties for perfect strangers. Let's shout out to a friend in aisle nine and form a relationship and let's show up to the race arm in arm with Samaritans and innkeepers and also priests and Levites. Because they may have passed by once, but they need to be reminded that they have goodness in them too. And then as we think about coming to this metaphorical race to the start, may we not rush forward, but may we go to the back. Seeking out the Cliff Youngs. And say, I see you, I value you, and I have something to learn from you. See, when Cliff Young finished his race first, he was given a $10,000 reward. And he took 3000 of it because he said, oh, that's plenty. And then guess what he did with the rest of it? He stood at the finish line, divvied it up, and gave it away to everybody who crossed the finish line after him. All the other competitors who had made fun of him, who had told him he didn't belong, who made fun of him when he took out his false teeth. He said to them, I see you, I value you, and I have something to learn from you. See, Cliff Young understood the invitation to restoration. And I believe that day, he started a ripple effect of restoration with everybody who was there. See, this unexpected man sparked unexpected restoration at the end of this race. And he was moved by compassion. And once again, this, this doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world, but it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of God. This week, I've been really totally enveloped in this song that I have just loved. It's called Simple Kingdom. And we're going to sing it here in a few minutes, but it's just talking about how God's kingdom is totally different. It's backwards. And we're invited to be a part of that. And so as the band comes, let me pray for us, and then we'll stand on our feet and sing this song together. God, we thank you that first of all, you have said to us, I see you. I value you and you are loved. Thank you, God, for being moved by compassion for us. And so out of response today, knowing that we are deeply loved by you, may we not try to control or contain restoration in a way that's comfortable for us. 
but may we get swept up in your contagious restoration. May we say yes to participate as, we're, as the Samaritan was just on his journey. May we just say yes to participate as we're on our journeys to stop, to set aside the things that we find security in, the things that sustain us, And may we be moved by compassion. May we see the goodness in others so that they can see it in themselves. And so today, God, as we respond, would you give us the grace to say yes, to be participants in your wildly generous story of restoration. We love you and we say, have your way, Lord. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing today? Your kingdom is simple, as simple as love. You welcome the children. Stopped for the one. We want to see people the way Jesus does. Your kingdom is simple. Lord, teach it to us. Your kingdom, kingdom is, is humble, as humble as day.
Your kingdom is backwards. It flows in reverse. When you call a treasure, the world calls a curse. The small become great and the last become first. Oh, your kingdom is backwards. Lord, teach us to serve. says, what do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And may it be so among us. Go in peace. <laughs> 